This is the Weekly You Demon. I encourage you to listen. It's good stuff. Celebratory uh, gin and tonic. Ugh. Tip the scales at 200 pounds shortly after Christmas. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's the heaviest I've ever been. And I said, okay, no more drinking at all until I hit 190 pounds. That went fast. January, boom, dropped 10 pounds, probably a lot of bloat, whatever. Got down to 190. And at that point, it was just like, it couldn't do anything to get below 190. I guess that's like my new equilibrium weight, 190. And it's been explained to me as this is like rocking a, you know, trying, trying to move a great big boulder. You're rocking back and forth, back and forth, and it just doesn't want to move because it's in that comfort zone, that, that little crevice. But then once you push it off, it'll start rolling downhill faster. And I'm hoping that's where I am because I've, I'm now down to 185. Uh, got down there, I dropped below 190 about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, and I said, okay, until I get to 185, I'm not going to drink anymore. You know, I, I went on a zero drinking. I got down, down to 190. I said, I'm going back on zero drinking. Something to a couple glasses of wine. I get down to 185. As of this morning, I'm down to 185. So, kicking back with gin and tonic here as I get ready to do the April 27th podcast. So, the Supreme Court has freaked out everyone by taking on three cases dealing with LGBT discrimination in the workforce. <laughs> Rolling Stone magazine is freaking out. You know, they're, they're so far left, left wing. There's like, you know, Republicans have blocked, you know, statutes to stop discrimination against gays. So now we have to bring these type of lawsuits to try to force LGBTQXYZ protection under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And they go through the reasoning. They say it's really quite simple for gay people. It says, I'm just going to quote this, When a gay person is fired at work because of her sexual orientation, the employer is firing her because she is romantically or sexually attracted to other women. However, the employer would not fire a man attracted to women, thus the employer is firing her because she is a woman, which is plain old sex discrimination. Unquote. (laughs) Okay. Second example, for the trans person. The boss who fires a trans man is firing him because the boss thinks that someone assigned female at birth should act a certain way. The trans man, however, is not conforming to sex stereotypes, thus the firing. Firing someone because they don't live up to sex stereotypes is also sex discrimination. Unquote. Freaking criminy. This type of reasoning just shows you Jacques Derrida wins. <laughs> if, if you rip text out of its context, you know, what it means, you know, in, in, the, in the broader scheme, you can make things mean whatever you want them to mean. That's why the Constitution is so boshed up. We got out of its historical context. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that you, you're hamstrung by social mores as exists in 1789. It just means you have to look back at what things were like back then to try to get a feel for what they're trying to accomplish. And that tells you what the text is, what it was supposed to mean. When it comes to the 1964 Civil Rights Act, I can guarantee freaking you not a single congressman said, we got to make sure guys can blow each other in the workforce. Yeah, this is all about gay discrimination. I guarantee you there's nothing in the legislative history that talks about protecting transgender individuals. <laughs> it never 
ever would have flown. And for you non-lawyers out there, going back to legislative history, that's some, that's like legal research 101. That is a tried and true and time-honored method of trying to figure out what the legislature meant. You got to look at the legislative history. These type of lawsuits, they're totally bogus. Now again, I mean, the left will honor them. Okay, because they're happy to rip things out of context when it suits their needs, which I find, you know, quite frustrating with the, with the shifty left, by the way. Here they're all about Jacques Derrida and deconstructionism and postmodernism and the social justice warriors apply these, you know, these, these ideas that words really have no meaning. You have to look at the context of the meaning. And Derrida, by the way, meant that a little bit differently. He's talking about context and the thing called difference. Uh, context being you have to look at compared to the words. But the same concept applies. You know, the text by themselves, by itself, just doesn't really mean anything. And they, they're all over that. And they, and they, and they love to, you know, to, to rip things out of context. But then when you have like a transgender narrative you agree with, like a Twitter, then it's all about context. So the, the leftists at Twitter are like, oh, I gotta look at context, gotta look at context, gotta look at context. The leftists then go in the Supreme Court and saying, just rip it out of context, don't look at the legislative history, don't look what people were thinking in 1964, just ram this stuff through. We gotta protect LGBTQXYZs in the workforce. It's ludicrous, maddening, and disingenuous. There's no intellectual honesty here, no intellectual consistency. Kind of reminds me of a, a former postmodern thinker. Said, look at, he goes, he goes, this whole idea that, you know, Derrida was getting at that words can't convey absolute truth. And therefore, there is no truth that can be known objectively. It's all subjective. He was saying, that's a sleight of hand. He was to say, because, you know, one word or one sentence can't convey truth, to shift from that to say there is no truth, he goes, that's not, that's not the same thing. You know, and he's right. And people can come to truth at, at different ways. I mean, you have, you know, St. Paul's. You know, observation that the natural law is written on the heart. You have intuition. You have common sense. Words themselves, even if, as Derrida points out, and I agree with them, are slippery and hard to nail down and depend on their context compared to other words to give the meaning, that doesn't mean they can't give you an inkling of what is true and what is not. Yes, maybe you have to hit at a truth from different angles. Maybe you have to read more than one text to get to the truth. And maybe you have to ponder it because the words aren't just lock solid conveying the truth absolutely. But that doesn't mean you can't come to the truth. And it doesn't mean that words can't help. So I guess I agree with that postmodern scholar, and his name escapes me right now, who, who basically said, yeah, he goes, it's, it's, a, it's an intellectual sleight of hand to say that words can't convey absolute truth, to say there is no truth, those two things don't follow. It's the Easter season. For those who aren't aware, Easter lasts 50 days. It's not just one day. It's kind of Christmas. Christmas isn't just one day. It's a whole season. And I I really want to talk a lot more about Easter, but I can tell just at this point, looking at the notes and things I want to review in this week's podcast, I'm going to go over 30 minutes, and I don't want to do that. I want to keep that 25 to 30 minute sweet spot. But let me put up this about the resurrection. It is an historical fact. Go ahead and roll your eyes. Just don't turn off 
the podcast yet. Just hear me out. Three minutes ish. <laughs> if we knew as a scientific fact that every so often, every couple hundred years, someone does rise from the dead. It's been empirically proven it can happen. There are, say, over the past thousand years, seven instances of it happening. The last one happened 75 years ago. No one doubts it. If that were the case, not a single freaking historian would doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay? And and let that sink in. There are a lot more historical quote-unquote facts that no one contests that have less evidence for them than the resurrection. Far, far less evidence. The historical record that Christ rose from the dead is overwhelming. And honestly, I could do a whole 30, 40 minutes probably just going through what those historical facts are. You know, discussing, you know, the penalties that would have been wrought on a Roman soldier who left his post, as these Roman soldiers did when Christ rose from the dead, probably crapped their pants and took off. Again, a ton of evidence for it. But we reject it for two reasons. One, because it's not scientific. And there really is no scientific proof of the resurrection, although I'm going to touch on that in a minute. And because so much hinges on it. Because obviously, if Christ rose from the dead, Christianity is true. So, (laughs) the atheists, the postmoderns, the Muslims, everyone who's on the wrong side of the freaking binary, and think about it for a second, that is quite frankly, I think where the binary comes down to, in a lot of the postmoderns' eyes, you have Christians or traditional Christians on one side and non-Christians on the other. And they'll say, you know, for, you know, thousands of, well, 2,000 years, since since the time of Constantine in 313, Christian was a good binary and the non-Christian or pagan or the atheists or the heretics, those are put on the opposite side to elevate Christians. But But no matter, there's so much hinge on the resurrection that it is rejected. And for scientific reasons, again, I don't, I don't mean to dismiss that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously quite astounding, quite a brash claim. But historically speaking, if so much weren't riding on it, and if it didn't fly in the face of everything we know from science and everyday experience, the resurrection would be a historical fact. No one would doubt it at all. Now, scientific evidence for the resurrection. Jump into the Shroud of Turin. That is cotton-picking fascinating. There is actually a, um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? Um, things you should know or stuff you should know. Not not Catholic stuff you should know, but stuff you should know. They have an episode on the Shroud of Turin, and it's not bad. And these people clearly don't believe in the resurrection. You know, I, I, don't, I don't, know, don't know enough about them to comment on them, but they definitely strike me as though they're um, a conventional left-of-center type intellectuals or pop intellectuals. But they're clearly not believers, but they kind of go through and say, hey, you know, uh, this, this Shroud of Turin is really quite puzzling. <laughs> and <laughs> I guess I need to tell you what the Shroud of Turin is. The Shroud of Turin was the cloth that Jesus was wrapped in upon his death. It's a burial cloth. And now the Shroud of Turin has been on display now for, for years. And you look at it and you can clearly see it as a man who was um, tortured mercilessly. And all the blood marks on it, you know, reflect Christ's wounds. And it kind of fits, fits the depiction of, that we know of Christ, you know, in the, in the face. I have a picture of it in my basement. It's pretty, pretty interesting. What's, what's really, really fascinating with the short turn though, even the skeptics, the people, the skeptics, the people who don't believe in it, 
they can't explain where it came from. The the pigment stuff that they that they see in the shroud, it's blood or not blood. Um, they can't figure out if this is a hoax perpetrated by some, you know, pious monk. If it was a hoax, no one can figure out how he pulled it off. So you have to look at a sleight of hand, you know, some trickery by a monk in the Middle Ages would would have had to pull this off in a way that no scientist today can figure out how he did it. That itself tests credulity. So anyway, the Shroud of Turin, it's fascinating. I buy it. Um, I'm open to be corrected, you know, and, and certainly my faith in others doesn't hinge on the Shroud, on the shroud being authentic. But boy, it's, it's a fascinating uh, situation. I guess there's a thing called uh, shroudpictures.com has some great new photographs of the Shroud that are worth checking out. I've not done it yet. Also, if you want a lot of great material on the Shroud of Turin, uh, check out uh, Father Robert Spritzer's uh, The Magus Center. He has a lot of um, Shroud of Turin type articles. Alright, some lighting segments. Getting rid of my second gin and tonic here. I can't drink too much. There's that old George Thurgood song. Says, if you don't start drinking, I'm going to leave. <laughs> That's a horrible song. I like George Thurgood. That song's pretty bad. Not bad to the bone, just just bad. That kind of summarizes my marriage with Marie. You know, I haven't been drinking for the past you know, three months or drinking very little. <laughs> she says, basically, the marriage is insufferable when I'm not drinking. She likes hearing the podcast and things I'm reading about, stuff like that. She'll, but otherwise, she's just not, <laughs> not a real fun guy when you're, not, when you're not drinking. So she's gone today and drinking doing the podcast but she's coming home with Charlotte if I'm if I'm half in the bag when she gets here she's she's gonna have my skull she's looking forward to having a drink or two tonight with me I tell you this gin and tonic is killer it's about 75 calories and some magazine article I just read said that, you know basically it is the best drink you know to keep in that salt figure while the chicks you know crave me it's the Bombay Sapphire is like 59 calories a shot. And then I had this refreshingly light fever tree tonic, which is killer tonic. And I don't use the whole bottle, so that's like 20 calories. So, yeah, I'm up around, you know, 75, 80 calories on it for a gin and tonic. It's pretty freaking sweet. So I'm talking to my nephew who's married to a, to a girl from Wisconsin. And they're mentioning that in Wisconsin, the, the child game tag... Is pronounced take. And when you when you go to the grocery store, they don't bag your groceries; they bag your groceries. <laughs> like seriously, that's in Wisconsin. That's you guys must be a bunch of fags. <laughs> You're the fag, Chester, for counting your calories and your gin and tonics. You know the the hubbub over Game of Thrones. I don't get it. And I watched the first four episodes, and I freaking loved it. But I had to quit watching because of the freaking porn. And, and keep in mind what porn is. Porn is a, the depiction of the sexual act. Simulating the sexual act. It doesn't require nudity. But freaking Game of Thrones <laughs> simulating the sexual act with the nudity with some chicks who are pretty freaking hot. And I literally, I literally just stopped watching. I was like, gosh, every time I watch this show, I find myself staring and I, I'm off to confession. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I gotta go back every 24 hours for confession. It's like, I just can't do it. I'm stunned at how many Catholics, good Catholics, including some priests, 
watch the Game of Thrones and endorse it. And again, I am a Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings nut, a Tolkien nut. I've read more about Tolkien, read more Tolkien material than 99% of the population out there. I'm not saying I'm necessarily proud about it, but I've been, I've been paid to give speeches on Tolkien. I love that type of stuff, dragons and crap. I think it's, 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 it's fun. I enjoy it. But the porn? Oh my freaking word. It's, it's out of control. And again, I'm just, I'm just done. I guess they even spawned a Saturday Night Live skit. Where they're like, well, we had this battle scene, and in the back we had these two lesbians going down on each other. <laughs> they just threw sex all over it. Just like I said, I, I'm, I'm stunned at how popular it is. I, I absolutely love the storyline of the parts I saw. So I get it, but how a good Catholic can watch it, right, and a good Christian in general with all the porn, I don't, I don't know. It totally blows me away. And of course, maybe I'm just a pervert. <laughs> There's that whole story about a group of monks are going through a, they come, they come from the countryside, you know, from the monastery, and they're going through town now, begging alms or whatever they're doing. And some naked woman starts walking through town, and all the monks, you know, cover, cover their eyes, not looking, and, and then she passes through, and the monks look up, and the elder, they're saying, the elders, it's like, didn't you guys look? Goes, I did. And she was beautiful. And then they went on their way. And the whole point about that story is that this monk was so saintly, so detached. If you're not familiar with the word detachment, by the way, you need to understand it. Um, he was so detached from worldly things like, like lust or desire for woman that he could actually appreciate a naked woman and her beautiful body without being, you know, stained by it. I, <laughs> I know I haven't reached that level of saintliness. I don't think many of us have, but... Uh, maybe maybe the rest of the people watch Game of Thrones have hit, hit that level. They don't find these chicks hot at all. Did I recommend that you read five volumes of U.S. history last week? Scratch that. I have a different book for you. It's 955 pages by Joe Lepore called These Truths, A History of the United States. It came out about six months ago, eight months ago. I heard it talked about on Econ Talk. It sounds great. But she set out to do exactly what those five volumes I recommended would do. She's trying to set out a balanced narrative. You know, she says, you know, Howard Zen, you know, just, he just wholly bashed the United States. But yeah, a lot of our United States history is often too self-laudatory. And she was, she's, she's trying to strike a balance. And, and she's Catholic too, although and I'm not sure she's a real serious Catholic. And she clearly is not a Catholic historian. She's a historian who happens to be Catholic. Uh, but but she sounded great. Um, I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I pledge not to buy any more books until I get caught up in my backlog of reading before I'm tempted to buy this one. Uh, Seventeen bucks on Kindle, twenty five bucks hardcover. Yeah, I'm really bummed that didn't hit on Ocasio Cortez's Green Deal more. It, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit on it here just real quick. You know, if the climate change people want people like me to agree with climate change. They gotta stop pulling stunts like that. I mean, what Ocasio-Cortez was proposing was ludicrous. It was a flat-out stunt. At best, worst-case scenario is just pure ass-clownery. But these climate change people want to be taken seriously. They gotta stop doing crap like that. I'm, I'm an agnostic when it comes to climate change, by the way. I, it might be happening. Uh, if it is happening, um, I'm not sure it's man-made. Again, I, 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 don't, I don't purport to even understand the debate, much less to have a belief in it. 
but GCP to the people like Ocasio Cortez and the Green Deal, it's a gospel, yeah. I, I can't take you guys seriously. <laughs> really, really kicking myself. Last week, talking about Tiger Woods and the Masters, I wanted to go back and talk about what was probably the greatest moment of contemporary sports history. It was five years ago, ten years ago, Martha Burke from now call for the boycott of the Masters because they don't admit women. And the freaking board of directors at the Masters, man, what? These are guys with some major stones. They said, look, we might admit women, we might not admit women, but we sure as hell aren't going to bend to your political pressure. And so Martha Burke started telling sponsors to boycott the Masters and put pressure on their corporate sponsors, the Masters said, don't advertise. We are not going to accept sponsors this year. We are so freaking wealthy, we'll just pay for the Masters ourselves without the benefits of the millions of dollars sponsorships. And then when the Now Gang showed up, I guess like you know, 50 women showed up, they were met by just hundreds of thousands of men, <laughs> just completely dwarfed. It was one of the finest finest moments of manly history, probably the last good moment of manly history. I don't, I'm not sure we've had any bright spots since then. And the cherry on top was this picture. And I don't think it was photoshopped. I think it was authentic. <laughs> Some dude standing behind the now woman protesting. He's holding up a sign that said, Iron my shirt, bitch. <laughs> Every year when the masses comes up, I, I find that picture. <laughs> I just start laughing. Hey, a podcast recommendation for you. If you like true crime, check out the Hurricane Tapes from the BBC. It's about Ruben Hurricane Carter, a heavyweight contender for the uh, boxing championship of the world convicted twice of murdering white patrons at a Patterson, New Jersey bar it's really a great, great set I'm about two thirds of the way through it and so far I think he did it, the BBC clearly has an agenda trying to make you think he didn't do it but it's but it's not all what, I mean I, you know, it's, it's interesting, this whole thing was tinged with racism, I'm not sure you know, Ruben Carter got a fair trial etc, etc, but you can listen to it yourself <laughs> Ruben Carter's accomplice, the guy who helped him off the murders, or allegedly helped Paul the murders, a guy named John Artes. And it's funny, this BBC clearly, you know, leftward leaning, as the BBC is, and these, these people are no different. <laughs> they put forward as, uh, you know, one of the defense of John Artes is that during his second trial, he married a white woman. <laughs> because the whole thing on the hurricane tapes is they're saying this was basically black revenge for some murders that whites had perpetrated on blacks earlier that year and this was Reuben Carter and John Artest avenging those murders by killing white patrons in a bar out of you know hatred for whites but then John Artest married a white woman and BBC says you know isn't that funny that they'd accuse him of this even though he married a white woman but you know Gavin McGinnis doesn't get that benefit of that doubt <laughs> you know they, they declare Gavin McGinnis as a white supremacist but he's married to a full blo- uh, full-blooded uh, American Indian. And if you point out that my best friend is black or I'm married to a black woman, that's just, you know, that's almost a stereotypical scoff from the left that that doesn't mean anything. You can still be racist. You know, you can't, you can't say such a thing without being looked at as a complete freaking bumpkin. But when the table is switched and a black man marries a white woman who is supposedly a white, you know, racist, a guy who hates whites, the BBC, left-wing-leaning BBC at that, has no problem saying, hey, that's evidence he really wasn't a white hater. You know, let's <laughs> go through and you know, do that civil rights segment on LGBTQ iron. It crossed my mind, you know, it's like, 
Why do we even have Section 7 of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination in hiring? You know, the whole concept is like, you shouldn't be denied unemployment to a black man just because he's black. Well, if slavery taught us one thing, that's that rich people don't care about the color of their workers' skin. <laughs> so, I don't even get that. You know, I say that jokingly, but, but look, th- think about it. The whole idea that slavery was bad, and it was, it was an evil, don't get me wrong. But the whole principle is, just because you want to get rich and make money doesn't allow you to enslave someone. I'm into that. But here, <laughs> it's probably the same principle saying, look at the rich, greedy person. He doesn't care what color your skin is. He couldn't care less. If he can make money off you, he's going to hire you. That's, it's that simple. Pocahontas? You shameless shrew. <laughs> that whole Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas thing with Trump, that killed me. And again, I'm not, I'm not the biggest Trump fan in the world, uh, but <laughs> he was such a dick about it. Just relentlessly called her Pocahontas. <laughs> she went out and got a blood test. <laughs> that showed that she probably has less Indian blood in her than the average American does. And then when the results were released, I still remember the press was like, see, she has Indian blood in her. She was right all along. <laughs> and as it filtered through, people were like, Ah, no, this is really kind of embarrassing for her. <laughs> I remember reading a couple, <laughs> couple of morons. Yeah, we have postmodern morons saying, well, if she thinks she's Indian, then she's Indian. That's part of her identity. <laughs> anyway, forgiving student debt. <laughs> this is a freaking outrage. I mean, this is just shameless vote buying. I mean, when, when, the Democrats have been doing it for years, and the Republicans do it with their own constituents, but the Democrats do it with the, the underclass just in general. FDR did it in the 1930s with the unemployed. Lyndon Baines Johnson, he did it. But, you know, those are always things like the New Deal, the Great Society, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson, you know, the whole point was ostensibly, I mean, again, it was vote buying, don't get me wrong. But at least they, they cloaked it, you know, in terms of saying, hey, by elevating the least in our society, it makes our society great all around. By elevating the lowest, we all benefit. And that has a ring of truth to it. But what Warren's doing here is just like, hey, just vote for me. I'll, I'll forgive your debts. We'll get rid of the student loans. It, it's just, it's just brazen vote buying. It's really just, nah, it's just, it's just nauseating, quite frankly, that, that, you know, anyone would, would go for this. I mean, anyone with student debt who votes for this, they have no integrity whatsoever. It's like, I don't care if this is horrible. I don't care if it's going to cost $1.5 trillion. It's going to benefit me. I'm going to get mine and, and vote for her. If you're that pliable, you shouldn't be voting. So, <laughs> if, if you want to go through, by the way, and you know listen to the arguments against it, go to Matt Walsh. She kind of lays down the moral arguments against that. Uh, the podcast came out, I think, a couple days ago, last month, last Monday or so. He kind of stole my thunder because as soon as I heard about this this shameless ploy by Warren, I knew I was going to ha- attack it on my podcast because I just freaking hate college education for reasons I'll discuss and I've already touched on in other podcasts. And I hate the fact that college tuition has tripled the rate of inflation over the past 30 years as an absolute outrage. And it's all this hudging gudge, as G.K. Chesson said, you know, big business. Big government. Here is big business, big government, big education, big medicine. They're on this. They're on this cabal together to screw the middle class by shoving money at colleges to help the lower class 
the middle class has to pay more for college education, and the rich don't care because it doesn't matter what it costs, they can afford it. So it all just screws the middle class. There, there's a there's a book, by the way, about the Great Depression called The Forgotten Man. Uh, it's, it's an excellent book, although I've only read half it or so. But the author, she goes through and talks about The Forgotten Man, how basically the Great Depression has really screwed the middle class, and all government policies do, but no matter. We'll, I'll have to revisit that some other time. But, you know, Matt Walsh goes through a handful of things. You know, he says, for instance, why student loan debt? Why is that so evil? Why not car debt? Why not home mortgage? You bought too big of a house, you can't afford the mortgage? Maybe that debt should be forgiven. Yes, those people can file bankruptcy, but they might lose their house. Bankruptcy ain't free. It trashes your credit record. It's time-consuming. It's ignominious. You have that, the rest of your life, yeah, yeah, I had that, you know, albatross around your neck that, yeah, I'm the, I'm the dude to file bankruptcy. And then, you know, he also points out, what about the guys who, you know, the many of the blue-collar guys or guys who could have gone to college? They said, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's just irresponsible. I'm not going to rack up $50,000 of debt. I'm just going to go straight in the workforce. I'm going to make a little bit less for the rest of my life, but I'm not going to rack up that much debt. It's not a good, it's not a good decision. So the guy who forewent the four years of college and went straight in the workforce because he didn't want that debt, what's his payback for making a smart decision? He sacrificed it. And know what he sacrificed? He sacrificed that four years of college, which is nothing but fun in the sun. And that's the dirty secret here. It ain't about education anymore. Going to college is all about the experience. It's fun, getting drunk, getting laid, doing whatever. It's not about education. And I know that. Because <laughs> when I think about not sending my kids to college, in the back of my mind, it's always like, yeah, but boy, I had, I had a hell of a good time in college. I kind of hate to deprive my kids of that experience. And every kid thinks the same way. If I don't go to college, I'm missing out on a ton of good stuff. I'm 19 years old, sitting back in my hometown. What a loser, Mario, when they're out there getting drunk, having a good time, joining fraternities. So these people go up and rack up huge amounts of student debt just so they can have the experience. Meanwhile, that dude didn't go to college. He forewent the experience, didn't rack up the debt. Where's his break? What Warren wants is morally outrageous. Then on top of that, she says, and going forward, we're going to do more Pell Grants. Are you freaking kidding me? We're going to throw another $100 million at the colleges? Does everyone here understand what inflation is? Inflation is when there's too much money printed or created. Prices rise to meet the level of money out there. Consider if you like to bowl. A big segment of the population likes to bowl. It's three bucks a game. How can the bowling alley increase the price to six bucks a game? Well, had the government subsidize games to the tune of three bucks a game. Because if the government says we're going to subsidize three bucks per game, the people who were paying three bucks a game would now pay six, realizing the government's going to pay half of that. So when the money flows in, the bowling alley will adjust their rates to reflect the extra money. That's exactly what happens with college tuition. So Elizabeth Warren is basically throwing kerosene on the fire to put it out. It's like, you're, you're going to throw more money at these, at these colleges and universities with their bloated administrative staffs who do nothing to cut costs? All they do is throw more and more money at amenities, fancier gyms, Olympic pools, all sorts of fun stuff to try to attract more students, and then they advertise out the wazoo because they're trying to get kids to come in so they get that college funding? It, it, it's, it's just shocking. I mean, if, if anything like this goes through, it, it's appalling. 
student debt should not be forgiven. I don't think student debt should even be available. Although I will say this, I think student debt should be available. Student loans should be available, but they have to be dischargeable in bankruptcy. And that's a travesty that they're not. So people can still get loans, but they have to be responsible loans. The lender has to have some skin in the game not to make a loan that sucks because they'll file bankruptcy on it and then they're stuck holding the bag. But they're, they're not allowed to file bankruptcy on it because lenders will stop making so many loans that'll tighten, you know, tighten the hose a little bit so less, less money will flow through. That'll hurt the college universities and they will then scream to their friends at the cocktail parties in Washington DC about how injustice is and the lobby groups. And that's why it doesn't, that's why it doesn't happen. Because they're all in this cabal together. To Elizabeth Warren, <laughs> you are simply a bad person to propose such a thing. Okay, that's a wrap for the week. Go check out the Facebook page. Subscribe to the Twitter feed. Tell your friends and family. Go to Demon Podcast for show notes and other information. As always, thanks for listening.